once more and to breach dear friends. The word impossible is only in the dictionary of fools. If my descendants wish to be as strong as I was, they must study patience. The Ultra Working Podcast. All great events hang by your hair. The man of ability takes advantage of everything and neglects nothing that can give him a chance of success. How often do you think about why you read? I'm Sebastian Marshall, and I'm one of the co-founders here at Ultra Working. I've read a lot of books in my life, and I've gotten great enjoyment and great value out of doing so. And I think one of the reasons is because from time to time, I reflect on why I read, and I think I've done a better job at picking books that would be very supportive for my life accordingly. And I don't think most people have thought about why they read. I went to look this up and see why different people read. And I looked at a bunch of surveys and a bunch of things, and I actually found a core thread. And I think these two comments, we'll link the thread in the show notes. I think these two kind of cover the spectrum. The first person said, quote, I read because it gives me immense pleasure. The power to imagine can be generated only by reading. For me, reading fiction books means escaping from the harsh reality of the world and living life by reading the stories of other people. And somebody else replied, Quote, since we eat to keep our body healthy and fulfill our stomach desire, we have to keep our minds fresh as well by reading. Once you stop reading, your brain becomes like a noisy bucket. That is to say, we read for the sake of leisure, learning, and especially to gain wisdom. So we were hanging out in the office and I asked the ultra working team, hey, everybody, why do you read? And I kind of got this look like, yeah, you know, and everyone's like, yeah, learning, exposure to new ideas. Um, I believe it was Xavier that said it's a high ROI on time for lessons and value. Uh, Someone else said there's no better way to experience things from others' perspective. Someone said it gives an understanding of how we got where we are, history, how people shift perspectives over time, how it led to where we're building over time. Everyone's like, yeah, but learning and stuff. And everyone kind of realized, yeah, it's kind of vague. What, What exactly am I trying to get out of reading? So I read to live the best life possible. And that means not just getting entertainment enjoyment out of my books, but ideally having those books shape how I think and how I live and what I do. So I'm going to encourage you as among three ideas here that first you should get clear on what you could get from reading and choose books deliberately for that. I think you should think from time to time about why you read, especially if you spend a lot of hours doing it, you could probably dramatically shape that and get more gains. Second, if you're looking for a better life from reading, then I want to recommend obscure books as more likely valuable than what's currently popular for that. And then third, I want to mention that a combination of rare good books might almost give you superpowers. I don't think that's too strong of a statement. So let's take a book that a lot of people think is one of the better books on sports ever. I I like this book. It's called Assault on Lake Casitas by Brad Allen Lewis. It was published in 1990. It was about the 1984 Olympics, which with his age and and his progress as an athlete and aging, he thought was his last chance to try to be an Olympian and and win an Olympic medal. And it kind of documents his, his quest to do that, you know, the ups and the downs. And with rowing, being part of a rowing team, if you're part of a team of two rowers or four rowers, there's a political angle on it. And do you get the seat in the boat or not? And how do you perform under pressure and the training? And if you go on to read this book, I'm going to recommend that you don't read about whether he won or lost in the end. I think it's a better book if you don't. I wouldn't read anything about it. But you can, you know, you can read passages in there, like when he learned from one of his teachers. And one of his teachers said to him, quote, you must purge yourself of all thoughts of self-importance and all inclination to judge either yourself or others. You must go to power 
with humility and deep respect, end quote. And then Brad reflects on that. He's like, humility? Where the hell does humility come from? I've known people who've trained a dozen years through a hundred wins and losses, and yet they were no more humble than a college freshman who had just won the Western Sprints. For some of us, humility does not come easily. A conscious effort has to be made to go after humility to main, maintain respect for coaches and other scholars, rowers, uh, along with the various helpers, spectators, and even more prejudiced onlookers. I worked at maintaining respect and humility with moderate success. At the opposite end of the spectrum is pride, a nasty monkey for any athlete or anyone to carry on his back. Pride, according to Webster's, is an overly high opinion of oneself, haughtiness, arrogance. Stay with humility, it'll serve you well. And finally, Mike said to me, you must assume full responsibility for choosing to pursue power, knowing that you alone have chosen to be tested and then proceed without doubt, remorse, or blame. You alone are responsible. Tough rule. By following this rule, I had to abandon all the usual excuses. According to Mike, I was totally responsible for any results, including the single trials, the camp, the future. Taking complete responsibility is the premier rule for rowing sports life. He's a really honest writer, which is, I think, why people like the book. So he goes through the moments that he thought about quitting and, you know, getting bummed out and training really hard sometimes and how he trained and what he did. And then, you know, what happens on the day of and wondering, you know, if the coach is biased against him and, and stuff. So you get a perspective. And that's already a slightly rare book. It's not super popular. Most people haven't read it. But I think that's valuable. And you get perspective. You learn about human nature a little bit and you get some kind of mental models you can use. Then if you layer on a second book then you can get, you know, more gains, right? So take Mark Twight. He's regarded as one of the best high mountain alpine style climbers, um, maybe of all time. And he again wrote with a very honest style. So here's a little Mark Twight. You know, this is quoting from Kiss or Kill, Confessions of a Serial Climber. And, and he was quoting about a time that he was really a bit of a mess. And he said, quote, last summer, I overflowed with the wild hope of youth. I was a young man and faithful to my goals. I was concentrated, fierce, and alert, a mercenary fighting an epidemic of the lame and the weak. Today, as I reach for my death stick cigarettes, I laugh at my deficiencies. I'm not disappointed with myself anymore. I used to hide my tears because tomorrow is another day. Now I let them flow for much the same reason. I was strong. I could have done anything. I seized the desire. Believing in my self-importance, I stroked and blessed my ego. Ambition was so precious. I worshipped it and stole for it. I rationalized every evil thing I ever did by weighing it against my ambition. I wanted to be a god without enduring the boredom of sainthood. I trained. I punished myself. I thought making myself suffer on a day-to-day -day basis would prepare me for climbing hard at high altitude. I slept on the floor. I carried ice in my bare hands. I beat them against the concrete just to see if I could handle it. I never missed an opportunity to train. I ran stairs until I vomited, then ran some more. I ruined relationships to get used to the feeling of failure and sacrifice. It was much easier than holding on. I trained in the gym on an empty diet to learn how far I could push myself without food or water. I imitated and plagiarized the heroes who lived and died before me. I spoke only strong words and ignored weakness at every turn. I subdued my fears. I was opinionated and direct. I became a man either well-loved or truly hated. I was ready for anything. I returned to the south pillar of Nupsa. Despite the warnings and my bad dreams, I knew I could handle it. I knew I'd summit in winter, even in carnivorous winds and crippling temperatures. But our technology was impotent against the winter storms. We watched in silence as piece by piece, tent by tent, our base camp was destroyed. It's like, yeah, it's pretty hardcore. He goes, he talks about going through a period of 
intense self-loathing. Sometimes he's a lot of swagger, but when he's down the dumps, he will tell you the truth about that. Mark Twight will. Um, but then he starts training again. He gets into it and he trains with no food and no water to see how far he can go and beats his hands against concrete and carries ice to see what he could do. He's an ice climber, by the way. So this isn't it's a little psycho, but it's kind of makes sense. But okay, both these people are people that opted into it. Certainly there was some danger for Mark Twight while training in the mountains, but it was a solo sport endeavor that he had chosen to undergo. So let's pick another one, the book Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage by Alfred Lansing, 1960. Now, Ernest Shackleton was one of the most famous explorers of, of his era, and uh, he got shipwrecked in Antarctica on his, I believe, third voyage there. So they were really desperate to stay alive. Their ship had gotten totally crushed, and they were going to need to super improvise to not die with all hands on board. Um, basically, they were trapped on an iceberg for many months, and they were trying to get out. So you read a little bit about... Shackleton, and, and this is a quote from Lansing's book, memorializing it, and it says, That afternoon, Shackleton called all hands together in the center of the circle of tents. This is relatively shortly after the shipwreck um, when he decided the camp wasn't uh, viable. They couldn't stay there. Going on. His face was grave. He explained it was imperative that all weight be reduced to the barest minimum. Each man, he said, would be allowed the clothes on his back, plus two pairs of mittens, six pairs of socks, two pairs of boots, a sleeping bag, a pound of tobacco, and two pounds of personal gear. Speaking with the utmost conviction, Shackleton pointed out that no article was of any value when weighed against their ultimate survival, and he exhorted them to be ruthless in ridding themselves of every unnecessary ounce, regardless of its value. After he had spoken, he reached under his parka and took out a gold cigarette case and several gold sovereigns and threw them into the snow at his feet. Then he opened the Bible Queen Alexandria had given them and ripped out the flyleaf and the page containing the 23rd Psalm. He also tore out the page from the book of Job with this verse on it. Out of whose womb came the ice and the hoary frost of heaven who hath gendered it? The waters are hid as with a stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Then he laid the Bible in the snow and walked away. It was a dramatic gesture, but that was the way Shackleton wanted it. From studying the outcome of past expeditions, he believed that those that burdened themselves with equipment to meet every contingency had fared much worse than those who had sacrificed total preparedness for speed. Right? So, so we got a couple of interesting things here. We've got dealing with self-doubt and keeping the morale up and, and making sure people stay with it. And you can see, okay, there's actually commonalities between Shackleton, who's dealing with the Arctic frozen conditions, and Twight, who deals with frozen conditions and you see things about um, trying to keep your partners motivated and dealing with politics in both Lake Casitas by Brad Allen Lewis and the book about Shackleton, you start seeing these patterns and trends. Let's layer on one more book. This is one of my favorites, Anabasis by Xenophon. Um, that was written in 370 BC. And uh, the Greeks, Xenophon was Greek. He studied under Socrates. Uh, they had joined a mercenary. They joined Greek mercenaries on um, an expedition to start, start a Persian civil war. The younger brother of the Persian king, uh, want to overthrow his brother and take over. And so they invaded, and the Greeks actually won and beat the Persians in the first battle. They had better better troops for it. But the uh, the usurper, the challenger, got killed in the first battle. Doing, he's like doing a brave thing, but he got killed. Um, so kind of the cause was already lost. They were like trying to go home. So the Greeks had beaten the Persians, thrashed them pretty badly. So the the, you know, the Persians like surrender, your, your guy died. And the Greeks are like, mm, like, heck, we're going to surrender. Like, we just thrashed you. We're going to march our way out of here. And so the Persians are like, okay, you know what? Fair enough. Um, 
you know, we'll let you guys go. And uh, they're friendly about it. And they let them buy some supplies and start marching out and whatever. And eventually the Greeks are like, oh, OK, I guess the Persians are right. They're just going to let us leave. When the Persians invited the, uh, the Greek leaders, the Greek uh, captains and generals to go to a banquet. Um, hey, let's just have a meal. We're all on the same team. You know, just have you know, your top five, ten guys come eat with us and stuff. And the Persians grabbed the Greek leaders and, and killed them all very treacherously. The Greeks kind of fell for it. It's the old kind of don't go to a banquet rule if you live in the ancient world. Bad things happen at banquets. Um, so Xenophon, the first whole uh, section of Anabasis, Xenophon doesn't even show up in it. He's very much a background actor. He was like 22, 23 years old, something like that. Young guy. Um, and he's just gone along with his friend, like, oh, cool, I'll watch a civil war happen, whatever. Like, I'm a young Athenian. I'll kind of go, I'll go join in on this, this trip. And, uh, but their leaders got killed and they, they heard about it and everybody kind of went to bed restlessly. They knew the Persians were going to attack in the morning. And Xenophon just like did not sleep while he was like having bad dreams. He wrote, firstly, on the moment of his awakening, he's writing in third person about himself. It was kind of custom. Uh, in the time to do that. He said, firstly, on the moment of his, Xenophon's, awakening, the thought occurred to him. Why do I lie here? The night is wearing on, and at daybreak, it is likely the enemy will be upon us. And if we fall into the king's hands, what is there to prevent our living? To behold all the most grievous sights and to experience all the most dreadful sufferings and then being put to death with insult. As for defending ourselves, however, no one is making preparations or taking thought for that. But we lie here just as if it were possible for us to enjoy our ease. What about myself then? From what state am I expecting the general to come who is to perform these duties? And what age must I myself wait to attain? For surely I shall never be any older if this day I give myself to the enemy." So Xenophon like gets up and he's like, hey, wake, wake up, wake up. So he like goes and wakes up the most reliable, just only young people left. Young people's like, we're going to get attacked in the morning. Like somebody's going to put a defense together. I know all the generals and the officers are dead. They got betrayed, but like we got to do something. And they fought this like brutal, grueling, super long, multi-month retreat with the Persians constantly harassing them, fighting their way back to Greece. And they survived. That's why we can read this book. And it's an incredible story. And again, you see people under pressure. You see people motivated. You see a couple people mentally checking out. Um, so, you know, when you read these different books, you start to see kind of what's universally true, right? If you just read Assault at Lake Cassitos, that's like one person's experience and dealing with the ups and downs, whatever. If you just read Mark Twight, that's one person's ups and downs and like, you know, weather will affect them and adversity will affect them. And, you know, if you just read about Shackleton, it's like, okay, that's one situation of leadership um, in a desperate circumstance and trying to survive and making hard decisions. And if you just read Xenophon, that's like one situation of someone being thrust in a situation they're unprepared for. Um, and, and that would be it. But, but if you like, kind of just read all of these, um, then you're one of very few people that's read all of them, but you're starting to carve out kind of the universals of how people perform under adversity and keeping teams together and individual adversity and, and dealing with like political situations and people that kind of get a little crazy and, and, and it's incredible. And I don't think this necessarily has to be, you know, uh, military or, or athletics. I think this applies to any field. So I'll mention a book called 5440 or Fight by Emerson Yu. And it was published in 1909. It was about the 1840s. It's not a great book. I don't recommend it. But nevertheless, I think it's very insightful about two different eras. I think it's very insightful about the early 1900s, because this is the language and the style choices and the things they chose to emphasize. And it's insightful about the 1840s and that it covers some of it, right? So you get dialogue in there. And that's a book about kind of like politics and espionage and settling and stuff. And it's kind of fanciful. It's eh, it's okay, right? And uh, But there's like an argument between... Uh, Polk, who was to be the future president, John Calhoun, who was a politician in that day. And this is kind of a fanciful historical fiction uh, about their argument. 
And um, this was about whether England would cede Oregon to America or whether America would cede Oregon to the, the British Empire, to England. Uh, Canada was part of the British Empire at that point, and Oregon was a disputed territory. And 5440 or fight refers to the American slogan, it was Polk's slogan later, that um, we will draw the line at the 5440th whatever longitude latitude lines. And if if they don't do that, we will fight the British Empire, which is yeah, it's kind of crazy. They really the War of 1812, the British had really kind of come out on top on that war. Um, and, and so, you know, a quote from the book, this is between Polk and Calhoun with the narrator watching. It says, but England may back down, argued Mr. Polk, a strong showing in the southwest and northwest might do wonders for us. But what would be behind that strong showing, Mr. Polk, demanded John Calhoun. We would win the combat with Mexico, of course, if that iniquitous measure should take the form of war, but not Oregon. We might as well or better fight in Africa than Oregon. It is not yet time. In God's name, Jim Polk, be careful of what you do. Cease this cry of taking all of Oregon. You will plunge this country not into one war, but two. Wait, only wait, and we will own all of the continent to the sass Kachasawin, I don't even know how to say that, or even further north. Well, said the other, have you not said there is a god of battles? The Lord God of hosts, yes, has screamed old John Calhoun. Yes, the God of battles for nations, for principles, but not for parties. For the principle of democracy, Jim Polk, yes, yes, but for the Democratic Party or the Whig Party or for any demagogue who tries to lead either, no, no. The florid face of Polk went livid. Sir, said he, reaching for his hat. At least I have learned what I came to learn. I know how, I know how you will appear on the floor of the convention, sir. You will divide this party hopelessly. You are a traitor to the Democratic Party. I charge it to your face here and now. I came to ask of you for your support and find you only talking of principles. Sir, tell me, what have principles to do with elections? Now, if you contrast that and you actually uh, pick up a book like Diplomacy by Henry Kissinger, the former American Secretary of State, he wrote that in 1995, you're very, very likely the only person that's read both of those. You pick up another book on diplomacy, um, you know, by a, a random foreign minister during an influential time in Europe. And like, yeah, almost certainly you're the only person that's read all three books. You can kind of triangulate, right? And you can kind of see that as much as that book's kind of hackneyed and a little cheesy, um, yeah, the United States did have this dilemma and that they were in a conflict with, uh, you know, Mexico over Texas and they were in a conflict with the British Empire over Oregon. It's like, well, do we fight one of them? Do we fight both of them? What happens if we fight both of them at the same time? If we lose on one side, does that mean we lose on the other side? And, you know, you get to kind of get the attitudes of, of over 100 years ago. This is the 19, 1909 attitudes it's just fascinating. So you can kind of see what's kind of universally true. What are the questions statesmen think through, you know, and that dialogue right there, like, oh, maybe we should take a position that our party will win the election on the American people want to hear. And somebody else is like, look, we're going to get our we're going to get our butt handed to us if we fight the British Empire. You know, we'd be better off, you know, striking off on an expedition halfway around the world than fighting the British. We're going to lose. Um, if we just wait and we're patient, you know, maybe we can outsettle them. Maybe we could just get a lot of our people settled in Oregon and then be like, well, look, it should be ours. It's like all our people live there. There are people. And then, you know, you got a friendly base. And so kind of going through all of that. Right. And, you know, you then read about, you know, different different eras and you kind of triangulate what's true. 
So here's my basic contention is that, you know, whenever you read uh, an, an obscure book that's insightful, you're gaining insight that nobody else has. So if you read the latest Malcolm Gladwell book, I mean, a lot of other people have read that and, and you don't really get any bonus points for that. And if you combine, you know, Malcolm Gladwell with Seth Godin, there's a lot of people that have read Malcolm Gladwell and Seth Godin. You're not really bringing anything new to the table in terms of ideas. Furthermore, you're getting today's bias in everything, right? So if you read some of that and some different times from different eras, you can wind up kind of cutting away at what's today's thing, right? You read a book that's all based on today's bias and anything that's written to be a bestseller today will, will just have today's bias. It'll have today's optimisms. It'll have today's pessimisms. It'll have all that, right? So if you read an old book, you're, like, you're able to take the stuff that's obviously just junk, that's not true, that doesn't match today's experience and be like, well, that's junk. But like the good parts are like, it's totally true. Like Xenophon, you know, being in bed, he's like, why aren't I doing anything? Nobody's doing anything. Who's going to do something? We're always going to do something. I better do something. That's, that's a universal human experience. 2,300 years later, we can recognize there's times it's clear something bad's happening and nobody's speaking up and nobody's doing anything. And hopefully it won't be as high stakes as you're in the middle of a Persian civil war or whatever, and you're trapped and you're going to be attacked in the morning. But there's plenty of times that there's clear something bad going on. Nobody's doing anything. Why? Oh, I don't feel qualified. I'm too young. I'm too whatever. Well, maybe you want to do something. Or the point about Mark Twight being like down in the dumps, then he starts training. Then he goes off to like do his big mission. And then he gets like unlucky and can't even follow through with it. It's like, huh, okay. I guess that's something I have to deal with. It's not like a, you know, an epic fiction book that's just trying to, you know, sell me on this idea of, you know, this escapist heroism fantasy it's like that's the real deal and like that, that sucks and wow okay i recognize that in my own work from time to time you know you're like down then you get up and you're like training and you're really on it and then like just like you can't even fight because like you know whatever the storms tear your base camp apart right it's like huh that's a universal human experience and you look at shackleton you could see how that speech he's throwing away his gold into the snow gold right that was valuable he probably could have taken it but he's like no extra weight we're all gonna if we die it doesn't matter if we die with some gold on us you know it's fascinating stuff right so where should you look for books to read? So I, I think you're going to have to hunt out your own books. Um, but I, I think first off, anyone that pioneered or was pioneering in the field, especially obscure people, are really good to read and read about. So, you know, obviously there's Andrew Carnegie, John Rockefeller, Henry Ford. All of them wrote autobiographies. I've read Carnegie's and Ford's, both of which are good. Um, I didn't realize Rockefeller had written one. I haven't read it. I did read Titan by Ron Chernow, which is excellent, meticulously researched. Um, so it's like, cool, okay, you can see like building an organization. And then you read newer ones like Sam Walton, Made in America, like, okay, you see what's true between both of those, and it's probably universally true. But again, Sam Walton's famous, built Walmart. Um, there's other people like R.G. Letourneau, who you've probably never heard of, um, and he wrote a great autobiography called Mover of Men and Mountains. And this book's great, um, and it's obscure, most people haven't read it. And that guy invented tons of like, heavy construction equipment materials. So whenever you see like a bulldozer or a crane or like one of those digger things, like it's very possible like he invented that. Um, and like for a while, like 70% of American heavy construction material was his, like he invented all kinds of stuff. So you read that and it's like, oh, cool. That's really insightful. And again, this, this could be in any sort of fields, right? So there's compilations of the letters Vincent Van Gogh sent to his brother Theo. And again, he deals with some of the things that any of these ambitious people deal with. Salvador Dali wrote an okay book on creativity and, and so on. Uh, the inventor of double entry accounting, Luca De Pacioli, he wrote a textbook on math that included his primer on accounting. It was the first time double entry accounting had shown up in a formalized way. It's short. It's worth reading. I read it. It's really short. You can read it. Um, side note, it was illustrated by Leonardo da Vinci, who was his roommate. A lot of people don't know that the inventor of double entry accounting was roommates with Leonardo da Vinci. That's kind of cool. Probably some intellectual cross-pollination there. So yeah, I, I think anyone that's pioneering in any field is potentially worth reading. Um, after that, I, I think really expanding your search base to international figures that most people in your country wouldn't read will give you ideas because there's certain biases per country and how we do things. 
So following on from the industrialist thing, from Japan, there's Konosuke Matsushita. And he founded Panasonic and built a rather remarkable life from 1894 to 1989 in Japan. And uh, John Cotter wrote a great biography of him called Matsushita Leadership. And so it goes from him being a young guy, an electrician, uh, to starting his own business and just struggling to survive. And it was like close. It was like a near run thing. Then he builds up his business. Obviously, World War II happens. That's no good. And him trying to like, you know, not get on the blacklist after the, the Americans occupied Japan. Fascinating book, right? And kind of talks about his life, his philosophy, how he built things, um, and so on. Another one from Japan, Leslie Downer wrote a great book about the Satsumi family, the brothers, the Satsumi family. It's about the father and the two brothers who built Seibu Corporation, one of the largest in Japan. Also a great read. Uh, one of the guys was more like a hard business guy. And the other guy was like a super artist of these two brothers and very interesting to read about their relationship and how they did that. It's just cool. And most Americans haven't read it. Most people that aren't from Japan, most people hadn't, in Japan haven't read it, but most people in, not in Japan really haven't read it, right? Um, going right to the source, you could read Taichi Ono, uh, his book about engineering, and, and it's just thinking about engineering. It's very valuable for non-engineers. Um, he went into building a Toyota production system. Um, Toyota became one of the most successful companies of all time. Um, stepping away from Japan, those are a great three combo to get, you know, some insight into Japan and you compare them how Americans do things, how people in different countries do things. Um, step away from Japan, um, there's, there's I, I, I'm wondering if there's anyone else but me in the whole world. If it's you before you heard this, write me and let me know. But has anyone read the English translation of the autobiography of General Zhukov? Um, so Georgi Zhukov, he was the top Russian general during World War II. And I don't think it's even controversial at all to say Russia loses World War II without him. Um, his book was full of all kinds of insights, both historical and like just how he got things done and how he thought about it. And man, was a genius. You know, when you read books by, you know, people in different countries that are not normally what is read in your country, um, you get a different perspective. You know, Zhukov is like really like very cavalier about some things that we're really delicate about as Americans. And, um, and, and on other things, he takes like really seriously and solemnly that we are pretty cavalier about. So that's kind of interesting. And you can just kind of like see what, like, hey, that's probably universally true. And like, oh, that, I think is wrong about that, right? You know, in the United States, we tend to read about American figures and some Western Europeans, but there's a lot of great thinkers and doers everywhere. So uh, more importantly than that, you're more likely to get rare and obscure insights, right, that you don't get because they have a different worldview um, than you and different culture than you. And you can kind of look to synthesize all of those. So that's the first thing. I definitely recommend first the pioneers and second the people internationally. Um, after that, I think any biographies or summaries of stuff you've maybe even already read about, but it was written during a different time period, right? So whenever you read a book written in a different era, right, you get insights into both the, the whatever the subject matter that the author is writing about as well as that era, right? So I'd much rather read a biography about Charlemagne or a summary of Aristotle's ideas written in Victorian England than written in 2010 in America. So by reading books from different eras, you get insights into two historical eras, right? So whatever the Victorian coverage of Julius Caesar is, and they wrote a number of books and about the Romans in that time period, um, it's, it's going to be different. It's going to emphasize different things. And some of those things are important, but we just don't emphasize them now. Um, in particular, like the study in like the kind of epic side of someone's character and their ambition and their formative childhood experience is something we kind of, yeah, we just don't really do that these days in, in, in 2019 um, in the West. Just not kind of how we analyze things. So it's kind of interesting. Um, I liked uh, Count Aegon Caesar Corti's The Rise of Houth Rothschild, which was written in 1928. And Corti was a best-selling Austrian-Italian author in the day. And he's, he's like a funny guy. He's hard to get your mind around. He was deeply monarchist. Obviously, the Count is, you know, he's, he's in the nobility. Um, he married a Jewish wife, nevertheless got mixed up with the Nazis a little bit before he realized, you know, kind of that they were no good. His son got arrested by the Gestapo for, the, for anti-Nazi activity. I mean, uh, like kind of like, man, that's a guy that I want want to get his perspective just and you learn a lot 
by people that wrote in different eras. Um, so, you know, he wrote this very kind of hagiographic uh, book of the Rothschilds, clearly a lot of admiration, again, emphasizing stuff that would have been emphasized in 1928 more so than 2019. So I found that quite insightful. So um, anytime that you can reach back to anything written in a different time period, that's valuable. Um, there's a great little book written at the end of the Victorian era called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day by Arnold Bennett. And yeah, it's just a very different take on time management. Just as kind of a end of the Victorian British sense about it, you know, and, and that one made the rounds a little bit. That one got a little popular. It's a short read. It's fun. Um, you pick it up. You're just like, huh, okay. You get insight into both time management, the universals of it, but also you just kind of get like a Victorian style. Like they thought about the world differently than we do, right? Um, obviously there's the classics um, and the first works in a field. And, but over and beyond that, I think forgotten bestsellers, bestsellers from different eras are valuable. So, you know, you should read Aristotle and Xenophon and Thucydides and, and, and so on. And, you know, reading the first books on any topic can be valuable. You know, you go to the, the first, the pioneer. Later on, people expound on them and stuff. But, you know, you could pick up a copy of Newton and just skim it. I mean, these are all online. Anything before 1900 or whatever the copyright cutoff date is, is all online. So you just pick it up and skim it. You know, you can pick up a copy of Euclid and, and skim it. Um, and you don't even need to read the whole thing if it doesn't, if it doesn't do it for you. But, you know, just pick it up and skim it. It's like, oh, okay, this, this guy invented the thing. I can learn about it, right? And there's a great little tool um, for, for more recent stuff um, on Goodreads' website, and I'll link this in the show notes. You can sort by most popular books by year. So I like randomly picked 1909, and it pulls up a list of all most popular books in 1909 as the bestsellers on Goodreads, right? I don't know how accurate it is, but it's close enough, I imagine. And like two jumped out at me as potentially interesting. One of them's The Last Trail by Zane Gray. It was about settling Oregon. Um, and another one was 1857, The First War of Independence by... V.D. Savarkar, and it was about the Indian uprising against British rule that year. And that was the first time that um, it was referred to as a war of independence, uh, which obviously is a very different resonance instead of uh, uh, either an uprising or a mutiny. Uh, a mutiny was the, the most commonly used term for it. So like, okay, that's kind of interesting. And I look up the reviews on both these books. They're both like well-regarded. Nobody's heard of them. Um, maybe I'll get some insight and I'll get some insight both into settling Oregon and into the 1857 events in India. Um, but I'll also get insight into 1909, how people thought and what they like to read um, and so on. So, you know, I think the value of reading these types of books is twofold. We understand their subject matter. We also understand that the people that were reading about it and like what they cared about, right? Um, I think all-time popular works that have fallen out of favor tend to be accepted exceptional, right? So if you can find stuff from past centuries, and again, there's lists of this online, you have to hunt around a little bit. Um, Ancius Boethius's The Consolation of Philosophy was the most popular book in the world for a number of centuries in a row. And it's a beautiful, beautiful work. And it's a little tiny bit difficult, but it kind of goes through. Boethius was a, a late Roman who um, uh, kind of exposed a bunch of corruption. He's a very honest guy. And like one of his enemies flipped it on him and he got arrested. He's put under house arrest. He's going to be executed. So he's writing this book of like, well, this sucks. Like I'm an honest guy. I'm virtuous. Why is this happening to me? Like I hate life. Um, and he wrote this book, The Consolation of Philosophy. Um, There's like a, a, a dialogue between himself and the goddess Athena to like explain what happened and the virtue of philosophy and actually a bunch of modern language that we use still to this day came from Boethius, but, but you didn't know that because you haven't read it. Like the term wheel of fortune came from Boethius. He coined it. And that's a beautiful book. I can see why it was popular for hundreds of years. Most people haven't read it, right? I got a lot out of Kempis's The Imitation of Christ. That's a 1400s book and The Spiritual Combat by Scupoli uh, from the late 1500s. 
And besides the religious content, which there's obviously a lot of, uh, I thought there's some really interesting lessons on self-control, detecting when you're feeling impulsive, navigating that, etc. And the thing is, when you read something, again, from the 1400s or 1500s, if something seems like junk to you, you just toss it, right? But if you get a perspective on why we get impulsive, why we do dumb stuff, why we say mean things to people, why we entertain bad ideas, like, whoa, like if, if they're saying something's resonating with you and, you know, 500, 600 years later, like, eh, there's probably some truth in it, right? So, you know, anything that was like really popular and also in other parts of the world, if it's later been translated. Um, so, you know, every now and then, like, like a foreign book, like um, The Art of War by Sunza, you know, it becomes a thing in the West, but there's like equally good books you haven't heard of from China. You can look them up. You can see what the most popular Chinese books are. You can read some of them. Some of them are great, right? So I, I liked Lao Tzu in particular, the Tao Te Ching, kind of hard work to get through, um, but like some great insights in there. It's held up pretty well for a couple thousand years, right? One other category I want to recommend, it's not a book specifically, but I, I get immensely amount out of this. But I like reading operations manuals. I like reading how companies and organizations do things internally. Um, one of my favorites of those was Ray Dalio's Principles document. Back before it was a bestseller, it was a PDF. I still like the PDF more than the bestseller. Um, and ideally, when an op stock is written, it like winds up getting released far later or even leaked. So it wasn't written for propaganda. So anyone that writes an ops manual to release to the public, it's like, yeah. It's like honest, but they're also trying to like convince you of things, right? And like, eh, maybe it's still good. But like whenever you see like, okay, like how do we do things? Now to that end, like how do I find these ops documents? Everything written by a US government agency um, is public domain. It might, might be classified, it might be unavailable, but if it's not classified and most stuff isn't, there's incredible stuff. So there's obviously like sexy stuff, like how the FBI does interviews and interrogations. And apparently one thing I got from there was they, they ask people to draw a picture of what happened. Helps them both remember, and it makes it easier to verify if they're telling the truth or lying. So there's two people, they both say something happened, I draw what it looked like and who was around and where's the buildings and stuff. But like even stuff that you wouldn't expect, like how the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, um, checks data sources and runs tests. It's like fascinating stuff. This is like hardcore people with like a very difficult, very big mission, how they do stuff. Um, again, I'm probably one of the very few people outside that field that's read it. And I don't say that to brag or to swagger. I say that like that potentially makes me more useful in any context that I'm working in. I just, I've got this like little bit of an established way of how the like top professionals in their field like get things done. Um, for the heck of it, I Googled a NASA operations manual researching the show and it turns out there's a 1,161 page PDF. It's just there. There's like schematics of like the space shuttle and the rockets and the life support systems and all kinds of like how using them. And like, do you want to read how NASA runs their ops? It's just there. Um, I often check U.S. Army manuals on like nutrition and running and stretching and stuff like that. Um, if I'm doing a fitness thing or I want to check that out because like they got to get like millions of people trained every decade. So like, you know, it's not a bad jumping off point. These are like professionals. They tend to write plans that like middle of the road, but gets people up to speed. So ops manuals, you know, uh, reading anything from how Toyota does something or, or just really any any company's internal manuals, because these are people that just like don't have fluff. They're not trying to like persuade you of their point of view too much. It's just like, hey, here's how we do it. Um, and I've got an immense amount of, out of that. And finally, of course, any works of great imagination have value. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of best works of imagination require some practice and working it to get at it. Like, you know, so Shakespeare's great if you can get your mind around the language. So is Milton. Um, but, you know, not being too much of a snob about it. Modern Times Foundation by Isaac Asimov is just a masterpiece of sci-fi and thinking. Musashi by Eiji Yoshikawa is my favorite book. It's kind of an epic historical fiction about the greatest swordsman in Japanese history. Uh, Hussein Hadawi's deluxe translation of Arabian Nights is fantastic. 
Um, and, you know, I, I think it helps to not be snobby and, and to really think about, like, did the author have really a lot of imagination to get your own imagination going? So, like, Sherlock Holmes is considered a masterpiece now, but it was kind of treated as pulp at the time. You know, even Conan Doyle was more proud of his historical works than his detective stories, right? But Sherlock Holmes is great. And likewise, um, I think there's probably some comic books right now that have a ton of value in them and, you know, like, kind of take a snobby point of view on things or, like, a comic book or whatever, right? Um, I really liked Lone Wolf and Cub. It's about a mysterious Japanese samurai assassin. Super popular in Japan, much less popular in the West. Um, I should warn you, though, it's incredibly graphic. There's some very beautiful philosophy and period-accurate history there. It starts slow. I'd give it three full compilation books before you decide whether you like it or not, because it really picks up in book two. Um, it's graphic. Um, it's violent, and, and uh, it's, it's graphic. Um, so be careful of that. The best Batman comics are almost certainly worth reading. Well, no doubt be looked upon as high art in 100 years or whatever. Um, so, you know, you mix these up, and, you know, you kind of might see a theme, you know, about self-discipline or something in, in one of these works of fiction or like a, a work about kind of like the epic unfoldings of large amounts of people and Isaac Asimov and Foundation. Um, and you kind of like, you know, you kind of like relate that with like, OK, and now I'm reading about, you know, how Charlemagne did things or this or that. Or you read these just different books. And again, the more you can pick books that nobody else has read, the more likely you are to pick up a unique perspective. The more you pick up a few different books in unrelated fields written in unrelated decades that, um, kind of have some similarities to them. It's a crisis situation, it's a training situation, it's a competitive situation, it's a coordinating large groups of people situation. It really just primes the ability to just find out what the universal truths are um, and the patterns are. And it gives you these like cool little memorable things. You know, that story of Xenophon, like in bed, like the leaders had just gotten betrayed and killed. And he's like, not sleeping well. And he's just like, I'm not doing anything. Why am I not doing anything? In the morning, I'm going to die very badly. And nobody is doing, I better, like, who's, somebody better do something. I'm like, why aren't I doing something? Right. And you read that and you're like, whoa, like that's, that's a universal human experience. Right. And that just sticks with you your whole life. And there's a lot of great stories in, um, in, in Xenophon. There's a lot of great lessons in Xenophon. Right. So, why don't people do this? Why do people just read what's the latest bestseller list? And, you know, I, you could say people are lazy, but I don't think it's quite that. I, I, I think the big thing um, is that people are less likely to have these books exposed to them. That's why I wanted to do this podcast, because if one person that listens to this starts reading obscure books and hunting them out, like for most people, there's no commercial interest in it. Obviously, um, any book that's in the public domain, which is written before, I don't know the exact year, 1913, something like that, anything before 1900 for sure. Um, so, so nobody's profiting, you know, when you read you know, an obscure uh, Direrum Militari or something, you know, a late Roman book about military operations. Like nobody, nobody makes any money on that, right? So they don't, you know, it's like expensive to get the word out. You got to like, you know, do distribution and marketing and sales and stuff. So, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's making bank when you buy a Malcolm Gladwell book and nobody's, you know, making bank when you buy something from a Roman in 400 AD. So there's no commercial interest, but they're also, it's kind of like a, a bit of a cyclical downward spiral effect. They're less likely to be recommended because nobody's reading them right? So if nobody's read a book, they don't recommend it to you. So you might have to go hunt them out on your own. And that's the big point here is I want really to unlock in your mind, both the profit and the enjoyment and the really serious potential value for your life in hunting out old books. You can go to Goodreads and figure out what the most popular books were in, you know, 50 years ago, 57 years ago, whatever you can do it randomly. And like randomly might even be whatever. And there'll be like a list of like 50 or hundred of them. And you just kind of scroll through and see what kind of catches your eye. What has an interesting title and you click on it and you'll, you'll also see, and it'll be cool. You'll be like, Oh wow, these are all my favorite authors in this year. The book came out, right? So you'll 
see some famous authors that we still know of. We also see some things that have been kind of forgotten, but was very popular 50, 60 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever, 110 years ago, people liked it a lot. So there's some value in that. And you can go figure out what the Chinese classics are. You can go figure out, you know, maybe at some point I should go figure out what the top books in Serbian that have been translated in English are. I bet they're fascinating, right? I'm recommending obscure books because it's really just great for building an amazing life. It's good for spotting universal patterns. And where they're obviously biased or mistaken, it's super easy to discard. You know, if 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 you're uh, very secular, right? If you're very secular and you read the spiritual combat and they're like, you must, you know, just simply just give your whole being over and obey the church or whatever. You're just like, okay, uh, you know, that doesn't really resonate with me. But then when they get into like, okay, sometimes you're going to fight temptation, but sometimes if you're too proud that you overcame it, then this and that, and you'll get in kind of a proud point of view and you won't take defenses the next time. You're like, oh, wow, yeah. I've definitely thought I was over something stupid that I was doing and then like stopped doing my preparatory stuff, stopped doing all my meal prep. And then I'm like eating junk food again. It's like, oh man, I thought I was over this. Right. So, you know, you pick up the trends, right? If you really kind of go deep into this, it helps you spot a couple of like secondary things. It's kind of a little more advanced, but eventually you start noticing the same years people were alive. So, you know, Konosuke Matsushita, who built Panasonic and Georgi Zhukov, the top Soviet general in World War II, they were only born two years apart. They saw many of the same advances in technology with, you know, electricity and some of the very, very early, early, early signs of industrialization. And uh, Japan was still pretty poor at that point. The Japan-Russia divergence, I think Japan was probably a little wealthier at that point, but not tremendously so. And then obviously they did different things with their lives. So it's kind of interesting. Like, huh, these people kind of had some similarities, but then they did very different things. Hmm. Interesting. So obscure books, highly recommended. We'll link all of the ones mentioned today in the show notes at ultraworking.com slash podcast. But it's, it's not those books per se. I could have picked any given selection. I really want to recommend you hunt out your own. It's not my list. Some of those are pretty good. Go check them out. But the value will come when you start just like hunting out random books. So if you see just like a weird, fun event happened in history, like you can find some gems of stuff. Oh, here's a topic that I don't know anything about. As far as I know, nobody I know knows anything about. I'm going to check that out. Maybe there's some gems there. Pick your own, pick a random year and look what's popular. Pick up a random country. What's the classic Hungarian book? What's the classic Ethiopian book? What's the classic Argentinian book, right? You know, um, and kind of, you know, dig in. You got to find an English translation if you don't speak the language. You can look these up and you might be the only person that reads it and you might get a couple of rare insights. It'll help you with understanding the universals um, of what's universally true in inventing or enduring or building or whatever. But it'll also um, potentially give you very specific insights that no one has but you. And with any combination of books, you can kind of triangulate, you'll be the only person that's read them. So you'll bring a new and interesting perspective in any group that you're in. Um, that nobody, literally nobody else has, where everybody else is like, oh, I read this in Outliers or whatever. You'll be the person that's like dove deep um, in these these kind of obscure, kind of some, some of them are like lost forms of knowledge. It's really gold. All right. So again, we will put up these books specifically on the show notes at ultraworking.com slash podcast, but I encourage you to blaze your own trail and find your own. Find at least one. That's my challenge. Find at least one book that you don't think anybody else has read that might be good and read it. I think you'll find a delightful experience and maybe a very valuable one for your life. So good luck and Godspeed in the reading and in your work. Thank you for joining me today. And until next time, it's been a pleasure. Take care.